0: This is The Right Way Podcast. Podcast. The Right Way 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 Podcast.
1: The Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm John Purcell. I'm the author of The Lessons and I'm here to talk to
0: Sam Elliott on The Right Way Podcast. Yes, John. Thank you so much for the introduction there, and hello to everyone in Digital Land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program with me, your host Samuel Elliot. Person you just heard introducing this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast program is none other than tonight's guest. Guest on the program, John Purcell, uh, very celebrated, uh, best-selling author. John Purcell talking to me about his second book, The Lessons. So, John uh, kind of uh, has been a bookseller. I believe he had his own bookshop, a uh, second-hand bookshop in. Mossman for a number of years and then uh, continued being a bookseller of like, for like 10 years of Booktopia, hugely popular uh, book chain, uh, bookseller chain within Australia. Certainly one of my favorites there, I get my many, many books that I don't have any space for. But yes, anyway, John then wrote uh, The Girl on the Page, which is a hugely successful book, uh, became a bestseller. And then since then, he has followed up now with uh, his sophomore book, The Lessons. So The Lessons are kind of centers around uh, well there's, there's several different main characters i'd argue but one of which uh probably has the largest trajectory in the story is jane curtis who is kind of a equal parts device of a celebrated author uh but it just between two different timelines as well uh and various different sort of characters perspectives uh, all very much uh, a love affair story to writers and writing. uh, Lots of different mentions. I I lost count as to how many people or how many celebrated authors, classic novelists um, mentioned throughout. But yeah, I didn't want to spoil it too much. Uh, And rather than me kind of detailing the plot exhaustively, I'd rather that you got to hear from the man himself who penned The Lessons. So everyone, please give a big digital round of applause to John Purcell talking to me about his second novel, The Lessons. John Purcell, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program tonight. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very, very good. I'm very, very good. It's been a while since I've actually had a podcast episode, so it's an absolute joy to, uh, to talk to you tonight on the show. But um, I want to start off with a question that I always like to start off with, and I feel a little bit bad about asking this one almost because of uh, what kind of happens of Jane in the novel uh, with her works kind of getting picked over. But I wanted to know where the idea for the lesson sort of originated from what uh, served as the catalyst that then launched it? Well, like Jane, this is,
1: as this, this, she, uh, she explains all the time, this is just fiction. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing, no, no reality to it at all. Um, the original, the original thought for this um, actually started about, uh, has to be over 20 years ago. Um, and I was writing about the character who is now Harry, um as an old man uh, 20 years ago and I had he had a he had a secret and I I, I kind of I kind of ran out uh, that the manuscripts kind of died um, I was a bit young to even tackle it but the manuscript kind of died um, because I couldn't work out what his secret was so it was kind of important to that whatever that book was going to be that I knew what this guy's secret was anyway so when I, I moved to England and I was in the middle of the of the landscape that uh, initially, um, excited me about the Harry story all those years ago, and suddenly Harry started to talk to me. I was out on my walks in the middle of lockdown, walking around the English countryside on the Kent Downs, between hedges and um, and uh, you know rising over and seeing wonderful valleys and like and just gorgeous scenery. And Harry started to talk, and I started to because of my I had my phone in my pocket. I just started to use Google docs and started jotting it down uh, what he was saying. And the novel kind of grew from that. It came from the voice that uh, that was Harry, Harry in his youth. He wasn't no longer an old man. He was a young man, vital, full of life. And uh, yeah, so that's how it began. It was really not much planning involved in this book. Like I wasn't Hmm. sitting out a big plan. I should have, I came to regret that a bit later on, but uh, when I first started off, I just, had the voice
0: of Harry. As an old man, that sounds so, that's so different to kind of what the the final the final novel sort of is. that's just particularly that you were struck by genius and started kind of uh, churning it out or churning out ideas on Google Docs where you're going for a walk. That's um that's crazy. It's not like normally so many of the people I speak to they sort of have these um ideas that sort of maybe gestate like you said like maybe on a novel that didn't kind of come to fruition. But it's sort of the ideas sort of somewhat aggregate. But to have like it's one sort of clear voice talking to you, and then after that, the rest of the novel kind of comes to be. That's that's crazy. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't my normal way of going approaching a, a novel. I've been I've been writing something else at the time, so he kind of knocked that off the desk. <laughs> with with this this countryside that you're talking about, I noticed in the acknowledgements because I always love reading the acknowledgements that there was a mentioning of uh, it was written in Kent Downs. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. The Downs the downs is,
1: um, I mean, it's a very romantic-sounding place, the Kent Downs, um, and it's, they, they award themselves the wonderful title of Outstanding Area of Natural Beauty or something else. this, these kind of nature reserves, but they're not really like Australian National Park because they're used, like the, the, the Kent Downs are farmed, um, there's very few public spaces, it's generally um, farmland, but it, it's... It's protected farmland. You can't. Uh, they can't just suddenly build a, um, a wall, you know, a, a, a bunnings or a, um, put a car park someplace. They, they've got a. There's a lot of planning uh, re- regulations in these areas, and so it's kind of, it's kind of utilized but protected at the same time uh, mm. to make it keep keep the quaint, uh, keep the gorgeous, um, but also make it um, still be a part of the agricultural life of, of Britain, but it is, you know, it's just, it, it's the hill. All it is is really downs really just just hills and they're not hills that are spectacular. They're not Himalayas. They're not Alps. They're very low hills, something you would drive by in Australia, but haven't looked at Oh really? <laughs> so, okay. a, so not like particularly verdant or? It's it's, it's funny. It's like, when it, it, I mean, you walk up a, a, a down, one of the downs from, from the plain. And you're up there in ten minutes. <laughs> it's not; they're not even spectacularly difficult hills to walk up. So it's, it, but it's just, it's just a goal, gorgeous rolling hills of green um, agricultural lands with woodlands and little villages popped
0: in here and there and hamlets, that kind of thing. So it always sort of steps because it's—is it stone? St- so stone stour? is that the the name? One of the locations is it? Stour, yeah, staston Stowson, um, Star- 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 yeah. Every,
1: every single um, bit of creek um, around here, there's streams around here called Stow something. Mm. And um, Folkestone is the biggest town near me. And that's a, um, it used to be a beach resort, a holiday resort in the late 19th century. And that, and my imagination can have, have created Stowston, Stawston, right. depending on how you pronounce it. Um, and that, that, that is largely based on Folkestone. Folkestone. Folkestone in the book is 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 Folkestone, but it's a, definitely a fictionalised Folkestone. It's, right. Um,
0: what about like how far into the creation of the novel did you start going to, you know, writing about the sort of south of France, like the Riviera and all those sort of places? I wrote it down, but I'm not going to attempt to try and say it because I'm just going to butcher it. Yeah. <laughs> well, all all that all that kind of happened in lockdown. It was it
1: was it was definitely a part of. Um, uh, Daisy's story and I needed Mm -hmm. to, I needed to have, um, an other world, um, option. you know, Um, possible for it. Um, you know, that's kind of a temptation. So Mm -hmm. I needed, I needed, because the story is pretty much about young love, uh, (laughs) and about big love and about how the world is always throwing you things in, in the way and always trying to, uh, disrupt, um, you know that pure uh, love, and in in my book there are um, there's Aunt Jane who comes to tear them apart. There's the mother that comes to bring them apart, and then there's class and wealth and all those other things that are a part of it. Um, and when Daisy goes south to the um, Riviera, um, she experiences a wealth that most people will never see. Mm. And it is it is a, a massive temptation to her, um, and another world opens up to her. She's lived a very suburban, very quiet life. She spent most of her time at boarding school, when not there, just in a very quiet suburban house um, in a in a small country town. So it isn't um, it isn't difficult to see how such a place could lead her astray, you know, just to, to start thinking about other things. And poor Harry. Is left at the farm and has no experience of these wonderful things um and so they're kind of drawn apart i went into it more deeply i think largely because i was in lockdown and i couldn't go anywhere i was stuck at home so why not write about south of france when you're stuck in a dreary uh, um in england in, in 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 cold wet weather and that was my um was my kind of my solace
0: I was just impressed because of it and like how mentally detailed it was, but it was like, we're going from the broader sort of picture of the setting right down to the more sort of narrow of era sort of details. I found like even down to Daisy wearing a mini kind of uh, the sort of, I enjoyed that as well, but there was other sort of items that I thought, you mentioned the novels about love and I was thinking that there are certain sort of items that we ourselves in relationships, whether it's probably within the context I'm talking about as Daisy and Harry and the wellies. I found that the wellies kind of took on this form of like almost like a mascot, like representing their love or what they perceive to be, you know, their love at its finest. What do you think about that, John? And And what does it do with like certain sort of seemingly innocuous or otherwise trivial objects that we can then kind of, place such importance on and prize above all else. Yeah. For them as a kind of
1: totem, isn't it? Mm. You know, they, uh, they infuse the, the wellies, um, which she, she wears, you know, to, to, to their second meeting, mm. she wears a pair of wellies, which her father's wellies. And so I think because of that second meeting and because of how quickly they, uh, they start their affair, uh, those wellies become associated with that, those feelings in that first meeting, um, and later on when uh, after they first um sleep together uh and and they're kind of blown away by this new world that's opened up to them uh, there's a kind of um they, they kind of pour the magic of their love into this item this mm. thing this this the wellies these wellies and I, mean, I was very tempted to call it something, try and try and put the wellies into the title, because <laughs> it was, it was really? for me it's so important. As I as I as I wrote it, that uh, these these wellies um, were kind of uh, infused with, uh, or the kind of a link to the to them both. And um, we, you know, i I don't want to spoil the story, but mm. these wellies appear throughout the throughout the rest of the book, and. Whenever I, whenever I wrote them and whenever I see them and when I was doing the editing, I always felt that they encapsulated something about the, the true nature of their relationship. Definitely, uh, yeah. And yeah, so that, that came about organically. It wasn't, like, the novel has, has, is very much an unstructured, unplanned beast. Um, Good. Uh, when, I, when, I've, when I first started. So these kind of things kind of happened organically.
0: So, you, so, so, so you're not like normally a panther? with like, is it, is, it, is it literally like you mentioned, obviously hearing Harry's voice and then you went from there, Are you not normally a panther or how's that Yeah. I'm not normally a
1: panther. Like it doesn't it normally, you know, I'll, I'll set out a structure. I'll know where I'm going. Mm. Um, in this case, um, what I did was I, I wrote Harry's story from beginning to end. I just I let, let him tell me everything. And I went right through, to to the to the end of, of harry's where, where Harry narrates, and then um, I went back and I wrote Simon's story from beginning to end really and then yeah and then I wrote Daisy's on top of that. Uh, I wanted Daisy to have the last word in the 1960s in so that her her point of view um, you know is, is aware of everything else that's happened in a sense. Mm. So I wanted that. I really needed that. So I did that. But then um, it was it was when I thought I was done that Jane started to talk to me and she never has stopped since. Um, and so I had to, she was writing, she was talking about things in a way that was, was deep in the past. And so mm. I kind of had her talking. So all the rest of the book is in the 1960s and suddenly Jane starts talking from the 1980s and it's <laughs> kind of, it's kind of disconcerting, and I thought I was done. But her layer adds so much to the book, and it it talks about writing. It talks about the book itself. The book is aware, suddenly aware of itself. The story telling is suddenly aware of itself. Um. So, in the end, what I had to do is I had to kind of basket weave all these stories together, and try and find find a way in which each narrator had a time to. To speak and give them all equal opportunities to speak throughout the book, and so, depending on, you know, um, on what I thought was most important for those particular characters, I then took those bits and then lined them all up so I had a, a, a cohesive narrative. What I what I wasn't worried about was people being wrong about certain things. I was quite happy for, as we all do, we we experience the same moment and walk away with different stories. Mm. And I kind of wanted all of my narrators to walk away with different stories uh, and to see things differently and to feel things differently and at different times and for things to go wrong and cross-purposes because they're only human. So I wanted that aspect of it as well. So there was a lot of a lot of needlework at the end there to try and stitch all this together, but it, it kind of um, came together.
0: It, it definitely sounds like it would have been a lot of needlework and it, it sounds like it would have been a... Not an altogether laborious way of doing it, but I can understand why I would have definitely posed some difficulties. But I'm, kind of, I'm obviously I'm glad with the end result as to how it turned out. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned there as well about saying that we're all human and you know interpret different mo- we interpret the same moment differently. Kind of another element, and I mean, like I do agree with you that there's a novel about love, but I think that there's sort of other elements too that I took away from it. Particularly one of them was how we ourselves change. Uh, perspective or understanding of other people that uh that we know and love over the course of how many years um and that can there's a few different examples of that i mean like there's obviously daisy in the way in which she interprets jane um the way in which she kind of lovingly describes how she's she sounds i forget it's like describing how she sounds so cool or rich when she describes her to the other girls at school she mentions at one point something about how She's sophisticated in the way that you're probably meant to use the word. I'm paraphrasing, but that sort of stuff, John. And obviously that that changes over time, her perspective. And then you also have, um, I believe, the, the flip side of that, which is sort of Harry... Uh, conversely kind of wanting to have Daisy sort of return back to the young woman that he knew and loved before she kind of seemingly changed into this other sort of person. What do you think about that though, John? Do you think that there's also examples of changing sort of perspectives within the context of the novel, as well as how we sort of as humans approach one another?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the, um, the stories in which we tell ourselves consistently over over time Hmm. change with our experience. And, Daisy's experience of Jane early on is is one of um, youth looking at, at at age and wanting the things that she had, you know, mm. being um, jealous of of all these accomplishments that her her talented aunt had, but also just falling in love. Like she just had a had a crush on her aunt. She thought her aunt was fabulous. I mean, she copied the way she smoked. She loved the way she drove, and we see. As Daisy goes through the novel, that some of these things are picked up by Daisy. but like she mm. actually inhabits those those modes and tries to be like Jane. Um, and there's even a even towards the end. There's even a um, a moment where Daisy admits that you know she misses having Jane in her life because she's such a fascinating person. Um, if she just wasn't so um, uh, morally and corrupt, whatever, whatever it is that Daisy feels that, that Jane is, and, and can't have Jane in her life, but she misses Jane because Jane, she still accepts that Jane is a fascinating human. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just doesn't want her to be around that much anymore. Um, and, and and Harry is is watching Daisy mature, um, uh, and by, by later most of the time, um, and it is heartbreaking for 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 Harry. Um, to see to see that this woman uh, change before his eyes, in a way which he feels at all times she's getting further and further away from him. Mm. Um, but I, I like to think that Harry um, has has within him this belief, uh, and I think it's his belief that uh, is is the kind of the anchor for their relationship, his belief in their in their relationship, even though he doesn't really push. He's not hounding her. He's not following her. He's not doing any of those kind of things. He has a quiet confidence almost in their relationship that it will come round. Um, he like like a farmer. Like like the weather will come good. You know, it, it's it's always a long-term project. It's nothing nothing overnight. So he has this kind of a a faith that you know that what they've what they've planted will um, emerge uh, from the from the dirt and flower in, in the future. That kind of Um, faith and at times in the novel it just seems ridiculous (laughs) that he would have faith in this relationship because she is moving so fast in an opposite direction and growing as a person um with experiences that he can't even fathom um but there he is he's still still seeing that he also sees um changes in in others as well as he goes along um but he he himself is very much um unchanging for much of the novel like he Mm. he is the one rock um in the center of it all while and he seems to know himself early Mm. um and he he tends to suggest that's because of the roughness and the toughness of his childhood Mm. and the, the, the the absolute necessity to be a man early on um and it's only you know only much later in the in the piece that we we see some pretty big changes in in harry and uh, and i like to think that that you know even these people who seem so um solid um can you know can by life and by circumstance you know change i i kind of wanted to have a look at that and look at examine this idea that you know people don't change i think people change a lot in throughout their lifetime
0: I felt that, like, with Harry in particular, there was certainly sometimes, at least early on, he kind of doubted a bit as to his position or status uh, of being worthy to be with Daisy. I mean, there was one line that he said something about, like, she gave her body and love to a simpleton like me or something. And I felt like those sort of feelings might have been kind of potentially worsened by Jane and Sebastian and their sort of attitude towards him as how they perceived him as this kind of uh, basic farmer. I think they they called him a brute at least a few times and they kind of expressed disbelief that he would read a brute would read um, Thomas Hardy. And I thought that yeah, I, I certainly agree that he uh, very much a rocket in terms of his attitudes toward Daisy. But I felt that there was certainly sometimes, at least early on, that he was kind of made to feel sometimes at least being a little bit inadequate. No, you know through so.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, he was, mm. I think one of the reasons why
0: Daisy uh, got
1: out of that relationship mm. was his self-doubt in that time. I think he almost felt like he, it was all wrong and that he was in the wrong and that he really, if he's a upstanding young gent, he should let her go. Mm. I think that in, in, in you know, the old fashioned kind of way of thinking about things, I think that's, he, he kind of realised when he went to um, Jane's house in, in Stalston that, he was out of his league. He was completely b- baffled by these people. Um, and that he saw that Daisy's head was turned by them and that he really didn't have the right. He felt he didn't have the right to be a part of her life. Um, and that was, I think that's the kind of the, the class system working on him. And I, I, I feel that that um, led him astray for a bit, mm. but I, I also think that he, there's a lot of pride in him. And I think that pride in him um, managed to get him back on track.
0: Mm. Yeah. You called it a beast of pride. There was a line John about saying it was, it was something in a different context, but I disliked the line I was talking about. I think Daisy had confessed her feelings to Harry early on and he talked about how the pride, beast of pride got to him. I think it was described then as a serpent. It was kind of like in this sort of similar line. Do you know what I'm talking about? I kind of like that. That one particular. Yeah, one. yeah, no, yeah, yeah, he,
1: yeah, he uh, you know, he, he feels he, he feels things rise up in him. He he wants to fight uh, in those moments. There's, you know, she she will, or something, a circumstance, maybe she, maybe she did or or Jane, or um, would would prick him in in a place that that it just it, his natural self esteem, his natural self worth just wouldn't allow Um, Mm. and it was wakened up and he rose rose up and that you know that's that makes you know often we we find that in ourselves we're quite compliant to a point and then suddenly not this point just and people get a surprise why this step why this particular moment won't you be compliant and why do you stand firm now and that's i mean it baffled daisy um you know as to why this particular moment and you know probably baffled him as well you know Mm. why, why did i put up with so much until this moment so I, I'm, I, look, I like to look at those kind of things, those kind of moments in people's lives, um, you know, where change is inevitable, um, and we never know quite know what what our response to certain things is going to be, mm-hmm. and sometimes we surprise ourselves, and I
0: like I like to capture those in,
1: in fiction.
0: Definitely the pushback. And I mean, in terms of uh, how, how far one can be pushed before they push back or, you know, breaking point. But also I found that that was kind of, um, there was a bit of a, a study in contrast that I particularly enjoyed between um, Harry and Simon in terms of the difference between the two and how um, how different they were sort of perceived as one a kind of as more of a dandy and obviously a wealthy moneyed sort of um, Ridley type, and the other is again sort of perceived as this sort of. Um, I swear they call him brute a few times. Um, that sort of <laughs> epitomises the sort. I think of he calls himself as well. I think he might do, but I mean, obviously, he, he himself is, is is a man of letters. I mean, he, he reads voraciously and reads, you know, Thomas Hardy and stuff like that. and he personally, reads Thomas Hardy is definitely someone after my own heart. But there was also within that kind of you open up this other sort of sphere of this sort of these notions of masculinity, how one sort of perceives that within oneself and what they project. As well as kind of what the opposite sex interprets as a as a masculine person. There's one part where Daisy talks about, without spoiling anything, but she goes on for a very long time about um, this one particular scene with um, um, with Harry and and you know just how just how rawly handsomely masculine he is in in, in that in that particular moment. And there's also then again there's also feelings of uh, impotence and this sort of inability to to be a man. Uh, which I feel uh, kind of uh, happened several times um, with Simon as well. And I, I took that almost as actually, I kind of viewed him as um, a Tom Hiddleston. I don't know I don't know how you saw him in your head, John, but yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that in terms of this sort of contrast of masculinity and how oneself per- perceives oneself as masculine or not masculine and how others can as well?
1: Well, I, 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 I like to, when, when doing Harry, I mean, The world in which he grew up in um, respected certain types of masculinity his Mm. grandfather was a violent man Um, the kids he grew up with um, tended towards violence as an expression of themselves Um, it was a hard working hard living kind of upbringing and so he sees his his masculinity through that prism Mm. while Simon Simon's experience of of, um, his childhood which um, i don 't go into much in the novel, but he, he, he's the son of a of, of a of a man who made a lot of money illegally during the second world war um, who is referred to occasionally as, as a gangster mm. and a bit of a, bit of a crook um, and he 's so unlike his father um, in many ways as a young man um, and he wants to strike out as himself um, but he doesn 't quite he doesn't feel the man his father is. Um, he doesn't. He doesn't go down that path. And when he meets Jane, who's so much older than him, so much um, more mature and um, and and settled, um, and he, you know, idolises her like Daisy idolises her. And it's an unequal relationship. Like mm-hmm. She is she is definitely the dominant partner. And it's a bad move for old Simon to to fall into her. Um, her circle and to fall under her spell because uh, she's not seeing him you know she's not seeing him as a as a full human she's kind of using him for her own needs she's in a, a terrible moment her marriage and uh, she's leaning on this young man to keep her self-esteem up um and this guy is just coming out as, as you know from a from probably a, a longer immature boyhood than than um necessary and and suddenly is swamped by this woman who is so dominating Mm. um and and he isn't given the air to breathe or to grow um and so he's he's kind of he's a big contrast to to harry um when we meet him um but as we get to know him we get to we get to see that he's he's a he's definitely a, a um he can kind of bit by bit we see him grow as a human um, and mature over the over the book and discover what he wants, um, and it's it's a slow progress for him. I don't he's not one of those people that really knows who he is, um, and he kind of constantly is putting himself together as it goes through, and it can't be good for him that his first real sexual experience is with a woman who, who belittles him as a man. Um, and I, I didn't want it to make. I didn't want Simon to be. Um, that's him. I wanted him that to uh, a reaction to a person. It's it's not necessarily him that is is that he's not an impotent man. He's not he's not a failure as a man. He's, the circumstances that he's in, encountered have made him that. And he's kind of he kind of recovers through the book, slowly recovers from his experiences with with Jane. And I, yeah, you know, I, I I knew there'd be contrast and I knew that would make it interesting that mm. Daisy was in or between these two very different kind of guys. Um, but it, I, I kind of wanted, I didn't want either one to be too fixed in who they were. I wanted them to develop over the books. Uh, and I wanted them to develop kind of in step with Daisy because their relationships with Daisy uh, inform who they are in many ways as they go through. Um, and, uh, just as much as, um, formative as, as, you know, Simon's relationship with Jane, but in a different way altogether and in a much healthier way in a way,
0: uh, even though, you know, it's, it's a more difficult relationship in some ways. So something that I found to be quite interesting when we're talking about sort of this, uh, these self-identities and wanting that to, to change or to have people that weren't too fixed in their self and, and who they sort of set themselves to be, I, I, there was a couple of times I was quite impressed because you're, you're talking about these sort of Riley circles, so they're innately kind of uh, eloquent, sort of articulate people. I found them to not be able sometimes to express themselves as well in speaking with one another face-to-face. Than uh, writing uh, the written word, I find the medium, of the written word, much seems to be able to convey the emotions and all these sort of uh, subtle, confusing emotions and feelings, uh, such as the letters between Harry and Daisy, uh, pretty much Jane's whole writerly career. Even though that's obviously gets picked apart, picked to pieces. What do you think about that though, John? Do you think that sometimes writer types can uh, can actually struggle to kind of convey communicate to themselves or communicate to others? Uh, as well, when speaking face to face, as they can when it comes to using the written word. And if so, why is that? Was that something that you even thought about when you were writing the lessons? Yeah, definitely. Because I don't want—I didn't want
1: the, these people who um, were writing their own na- narratives, because um, we, we we don't we don't think on our feet as well as we do when we're in, uh, at our leisure, you know, <laughs> and writing and getting things right and rewriting and all that sort of thing. I I've interviewed hundreds of authors, and some authors speak in paragraphs, but a lot of authors you can barely get a word out of them. You know, because their best work is alone in a in a room, and they put down extraordinary stuff on the page. But face to face with another human, and they're they're all shy, or they just can't find the words. And when you love words, and when you love getting writing right, you despair at what you say in the in on the on the fly because. It's none of you can't edit, you can't go back, you can't mm. you can't get it right, and you have no time. It's all done on the, on the on the fly, and I think um, I like the fact that people in in life um, have all the best intentions and have all these wonderful thoughts in their heads, but when they actually open their mouths, they can't say what they feel, and I I love the tension of that of a, of an of a reader reading. That knowing more than the person on the other end of of the character 's um, latest uh, conversation I mean they 've walked away from this conversation, going, what the hell and we know everything because we 've heard their thoughts and we've been we 've been in their head and we 've had them write them down so nicely for us, and yet when they attempt to speak it 's just hopeless and i I love that I, I mean Jane is one of the better um, talkers in the in the book i mean she she's practiced she she does it all the time and she uh, she can overwhelm somebody somebody who's not as as verbose as she is um and she's still talking my head i can't get it um but harry is hopeless absolutely hopeless simon um flows with the conversation i kind of get this sense that he's willing to go with the next person rather than rather than strike out on his own And Daisy will only talk if she's feels um, loved and comfortable. Like she's kind of, um, she's quite happy to talk forever if she's with someone that respects her and loves her and knows her. But will will hardly say a word to anything. Like her mother, she hardly speaks to for years. And you know, it's it's a shame because it it causes so much pain and angst and trouble. Uh, And if she did express herself. A lot of things would have been um, fixed you know wouldn't have gone to, gone to pass but we'd not like that we can't say stuff to certain people that we might say to others you might be completely open to a stranger but but keep, keep your mouth shut to to your wife or your mother or um, sorry <laughs> it's got the posty <laughs> um, yeah so we, know we, yeah, we don't we don't we don't always get to, to, to speak the way we, we, we think, and we certainly don't get to speak or think the way we write. Writing is something altogether different. You know, it, it is considered thought. It is thought modeled and, and revamped and, and rewritten and got just perfectly right. There's one, um, one of you I remember, um, it was Hannah Kent. Hannah Kent speaks in sentences uh, and in full paragraphs. They come out almost like they've been, they've been edited and 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 written, just a uh, uh, gobsmacking.
0: I remember sitting across from her, going, burr, 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 burr. "I <laughs> had nothing, I had nothing." <laughs> I was thinking about a quote because you you mentioned. I think you mentioned "Tender as the Night." I mean, there's a, there's there's a million books that I love that I mentioned throughout um, the lessons, but there's a quote. I think it's from "Tender as the Night," and it talks about, "I'm not asking you to love me for life. I'm asking you just to love me as the person I am tonight." Again. It's me paraphrasing it. And I kind of thought of that quote a couple of times when I was reading the lessons because I kind of thought, we'd sort of touched on it before, when we were talking about Harry trying to, yeah, as, as Daisy's sort of progressively becoming more and more transformed or someone that he doesn't sort of recognise as much the woman he kind of fell in love with. I kind of thought of that quote a bit sometimes. And there was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just within the context of Harry and Daisy's sort of relationship. It was also a kind of Simon... Um, Simon and James as well but I don't know did, did you think of that at all like is that something that you think sort of applies is that's people sort of change or they believe that themselves have changed and the other person who loves them thinks they haven't or wants them to remain the way in which they sort of perceive them and have kind of summed up their entire character what do you think? It wasn't something that I had in
1: mind mm-hmm. but it, it is something that I think um, def- deeply affects Harry uh, as a as, um in the early part of the book, because uh of his loss i mean he he loses Daisy, you know she 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 is convinced by her aunt Jane and her mother and different influences to um to kind of go off to the south of France and she's no longer you know really answering these letters in the same spirit she answered before, and so you know he he would absolutely wish that she had remained the same. Um, And he sees, when when he does see her again, he sees both. He sees the Daisy he he fell in love with, but he also sees the changed Daisy. And because of of the sadness um, that she brought him, um, he's got a greater depth um, the next time they meet and he is he feels changed, he feels that change in him. he's not as open as he had been he 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 kind of um protects himself um from her from uh, protects his heart because uh you know it was his first heartbreak, and it was it was a big heartbreak for him um, and she seems to wear the pain lightly um and so in their first meeting um later on. Um, there's a there's a disconnect there, and she's she's there for, for in a light mood for one thing, um, while he's he's there with all the feelings coming back um, and seeing both the Daisy he knew and the Daisy he doesn't know in the one person. Um, it's kind of overwhelming, um, and I I think much later on the novel, if you're talking about Jane and Simon, there's a there's a desire. Um, we have um, with dealing with people we've we've loved in the past Um, to kind of see that again try to to, to find something within the person who we haven't seen in years and kind of find that um, that lost um, love and I think when Simon and Jane meet up much later in the novel there's a bit of that going on it's wishful thinking rather than the truth, and we as readers are looking at it, just going, "What? <laughs> How can this be?" Um, and and these two are there putting a kind of a last ditch effort or something to kind of find something that just isn't there. We all see it isn't there, but these two just don't don't get it. Um, and it's, it's I think it's it's a it, that for us, it, all of us, is a danger that we try to we try to stick on real life people that are standing before us, you know, really stick drawn, you know, um figments of our imagination that once may have existed for a short period of time, 10 years ago. Or something like that. And it's, it's silly and it's adolescent, but we do it. We find ourselves doing it. We hope for, for something of the past to remain in the person we, we see. And we, we you know, and it's embarrassing, but you know, sometimes we do it. And, and I think that's, the opposite end of the scale to what happens with
0: Daisy and Harry. We definitely will do it. Certainly like we're very, everyone's very much guilty of doing that as well. Isn't it interesting that it's like in terms of cherishing these certain, certain uh, moments that sort of form into this, this sort of memory that we have of someone or the version that we kind of treasure or cherish. And therefore kind of forever want to have that version sort of in stasis like that. But then you kind of get the flip side of that as well. This is kind of, Another element that I really enjoyed about um, the lessons was seeing events happen that then form the basis or sort of ideas for Jane's novels that she then sort of has to sort of explain to people later on in the 80s that talk very affordably about her own writing. And that's something as well. I found it's when you described John when you're saying that um her voice kind of was like talking to you at the end and telling you all this sort of stuff and then kind of became in the eighties. It's very interesting to hear that because I I feel like it was probably one of the more like the most fun parts I would imagine to write. In terms of getting to witness Jane's uh, sort of events that happened throughout her life and then them forming the ideas for these novels that other people sort of uh then interpret and talk affordably about later in the 80s. What, what, was, what was going on there, John? I mean, like, that just seemed to be quite fun, I would imagine, fun to write, as well as this, you know, sort of experience in these life experiences and how they then shape these novels. I, I loved, I've always loved um, stories that
1: refer to themselves, that are aware of themselves. I've always loved reading about writers, their lives, and um, trying to find some connection between their lives and their work. I know it's not very cool these days in literary um, academia, but I I I I love the the biograph- biographical side of 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 books. You know, the, what is going on in that writer's life as they as they as they're writing, and um, and what affects. So, I, lo- I I with Jane, um, it gave me an opportunity as a as a novelist within a novel to really mess with the idea of of who's telling the story, why they're telling it, um, and play, um, relentlessly (laughs) with, with that, with the reader, um, throughout the book. So we have someone who's, um, in it, whose narrative is happening 10, 12 years after the main events of the book. So that's already a problem because she's, she's outside the main telling of the story. So even if I just left it at that, um, She's got the last word in in, in a sense because her narrative is written years after the others have been written. So um, that was one layer of fun. And then there was the fact that she's a novelist writing about the things that we're reading about as well. So then I got another bit of fun because um, there's one manuscript which actually turns up almost live within the storytelling um, about Simon, and Simon reads it with us being there. And so Jane's written about her, her relationship with Simon, fictionalised and then given it to her main character, um, Simon, within the novel that you're reading. So I've got you know this playing around. Um, and his reaction to that novel is one of horror and delight at the same time. One, he's the main character in a novel, which he's not in this book. <laughs> he's, he's been elevated to main character. Um, and she sees him he says that she's she sees him as no one else has seen him but also he's devastated because what she sees is just so disappointing to him it's just such a disappointment so there's i'm i I like that i painted that over there so that's there as well and then in the 80s we've got this journalist who is quizzing jane curtis who is successful novelist and who um has had lots of lovers and who is kind of gossip magazine fodder. Um, but she's constantly denied the fact that any of her novels are based on her life, that any of the extraordinary things that go on in her novels are based on her. Um, and it's just tantalising to a, to a journalist. It's kind of red rag to a bulls for the of stuff. And so it goes in like a fool um, to tackle Jane Curtis and gets completely and utterly this done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but she she throughout the, the interview in the middle of the book um, is conscious so conscious of her own live telling and retelling of it and and placement of, of herself all the time. So she's she's like this hyper conscious narrator narrating about narration. Like it, it I, I just had so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it just kept going and I, I, I there's just so many options so many avenues that I could go down uh with with her um and with this idea of who's telling the story and especially having so many narrators telling the story uh, and them not telling the same stories it's like yeah. the like gospels in the bible where, where Lazarus isn't mentioned in three of the others and and you know the, these different Big moments in 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 you know, Christ's life just aren't mentioned in other people's <laughs> versions of it, and I like that I like the idea of uh, three three or four narrators telling the same story, and none of them really giving us what we consider to be the the facts, Jack.
0: Yeah, very much. I was thinking of the, I'm, I'm not too well versed in, in biblical. I was thinking more of the the Rashomon sort of kind of classic Japanese fable and movie that's kind of similar sort of uh, narrators telling different sort of perspectives of the seemingly same story, but they're all completely different. So yeah, anyway, that was my takeaway from it. But John, the question I wanted to end with, and I always like to ask is kind of the crux of the podcast is I wanted to know if there was ever a point in your writerly career that you yourself kind of came to a point where you kind of uh, almost gave up as it were, if there was any particular point, point one particular moment or a bit of a stretch of time that you encountered some sort of hardship i don't know if it's imposter syndrome or various sort of external forces at work was there anything within your career some people have never experienced it and that makes me happy to hear that but uh, most have and i wanted to see if you yourself had had that and if so what prevailed to keep you going well uh, you know for a lot of
1: writers i think from what i have read and from people i've spoken to they constantly go through it like it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a recurring dream, bad dream. I mean, when, when a book comes out and you're waiting around to see what will happen, um, you know, it's very difficult to, to pick yourself up and do anything. Um, I mean, because you just don't know the jury's out and they're out for a long time. And, um, it's kind of, uh, um, disconcerting and, and you just don't, I mean, I, I certainly don't, I don't get on with anything. I just, I just sort of, I'm in stasis. Um, there have been, I mean, my, my writing career, you know, is is just one long, um, well, for most of it, like, it, it, this last period has been great, but the rest of it, I started writing seriously, I, I, I wrote my first novel, which was absolute crap, but I finished it, and I was pleased to have finished, around 20, I think I was, so It was 20 years after that and a lot of writing and a lot of reading before I actually got something published. And it was an accident that I got published. Um, And then it was another, even though I had a a success of a kind at that time, uh, it was another six, seven years until I got something published under my own name. So I kind of had, I've had two debuts. I debut under a woman's name, then I debuted under my own name. Uh, in the, in that period, in that period in between, there's lots of times that I just thought I'd give up. I had a mm. I had a novel that no one, no one wanted to do with. I like was dispiriting. I, I'd written this thing and it was it was enormous, and I'd I'd honed it and I thought it was in great shape, and I was out there flogging it, and just no one would take it. And that and I was very busy at that time. I I'd taken on more at work, and so. Um, I didn't. I couldn't find the energy to do anything new, mm-hmm. and so I just kept flogging this old dead horse, and it just didn't go. And when I finally got someone interested in it, that's when I gave up on it. Yeah, I, yeah. I finally, actually, got, I got an offer on it, and it was such a terrible offer and such a dispiriting project around this this manuscript that I just went, "That's it. I'm done." And as soon as I did that. Uh, it was uh, it was shortly like a couple of months later that the Girl on the Page was written like it was just insane. I'd been stomping around grumbling and, and unhappy and wanting to give up, and I got rid of this big problem, this big novel that no one wanted, and almost immediately I wrote the Girl on the page it was It was insane, it was quick, it all happened without any worry. I got published easily like it was it was absolutely um, incredible to me uh, who had been at this for 26 years or whatever it was mm. <laughs> to have this sudden turn around. Um, yeah. So there are, you know, most writers go through a long, long process to get, to get where they, where they want to be. Even those who are published early um, go through a long process to be where they want to be. Um, you know, I, I often think that it's better not to be published early, like mm. to have, have not put out book after book after book that you're not really that proud of in your later life, but to have a kind of a an apprenticeship of doom and gloom to go through uh, and to hide your failed manuscripts uh, away from the public. Um, and then, you know, as a more mature writer come out and be published, I think that's probably the better way to go.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I'm still going through the the doom and gloom sort of uh, sort of stage, John. I'm about, uh, how old am I? I'm 33, 34. So I've been gone for about 14 years. So thereabouts. And I, funnily enough, what you're talking about, this giant thing that no one really wanted anything to do with, I think that is, is very much what I'm up to. I, ju- I just had that. And then I just had a novel that kind of uh, seemed to fly out. On its own accord, shortly after, so certainly can relate, and I'm really, really glad that you shared that story because, yeah, I think you're right. And but I mean, some writers I do talk to, and you know, they they haven't um, encountered any real. You know, I think everyone has to have a healthy amount of self doubt. I think you really need that to keep, you know, keep, keep you on your toes. But um, some people have had really awful periods. Some people not had him, but I'm always happy to hear the the different stories and stuff like that. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And um, I really appreciate you talking to me all the way from Mary to England today, John, um, where it's 10 30 odd time, your morning. Um, yeah. Absolute pleasure speaking to you on the program. Well. Thank you very much for having me. So Ron, there you have it. That was me talking to John Purcell about his second book. Now the lessons, which has just come out from the good folks of Harper Collins. So be sure to get your copy, uh, now from them the Collins 4th Estate subset uh, yeah get your copy of The Lessons John Purcell huge thanks again to John for talking to me on the program tonight about The Lessons it was an absolute joy talking to him as well always an absolute pleasure to talk to someone who is clearly a fellow lover of the written word and classics i.e. Thomas Hardy uh, anyone that is a fan of Thomas Hardy is very much a person after my own heart so an absolute pleasure talking to John on the program tonight uh, and while I'm in the thanking room Thank you so much for you listening to this particular episode of the Right Way podcast program as well. Be sure to listen to that ever-proliferating back catalogue, as we like to call it, of the previous episodes. They're now extending from as far back as November 2020. They're just going to keep rolling in, albeit um, more are going to be coming in at a a slightly less uh, feverish, ferocious pace that they have previously i'm slowing down a bit just so i could focus on my own sort of stuff as well got a bit going on uh, all positive but uh, yes very taxing on the time there as well as you know all the sort of commitments as well but uh, yeah if you haven't already please give a cheeky follow on spotify there or soundcloud wherever you're listening to this on be sure to tell your friends your neighbors your enemies about the program as well so they can listen to it as well uh and also i wanted to give a shout out now to Mandy Maloney about her uh, book titled Pregnancy Virgin. So are you or someone you know pregnant for the first time? Check out the new book from Mandy Maloney titled Pregnancy Virgin. This laugh out loud memoir is a humorous insight into the ins and outs and ups and downs of pregnancy. So uh, be sure to get your copy of Pregnancy Virgin now. You can get that from Mandy's publisher, which is Nightstand Press. Uh, so check that out now, but yeah, do check out that uh, that book Pregnancy Virgin there for Mandy uh, as well, can't recommend that enough. Yes, in the interim, thank you so much for listening to this particular episode of the show. Check out the rest. But yes, keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Thank you so much for the support. I'll continue to support you any which way I can as well as the industry and the writing profession, which obviously I love so much. It's my passion. It's my vocation. So I'm always going to try and help out the community as best I can. And hopefully get to keep talking to really cool writers uh, doing the same thing. So yeah, thank you so much. Everyone have a lovely evening now.